All right, I am now plugged in. Amen. What a great reminder that is of how good and great our God is. If you are a child three years through third grade and you would like to go to kids' church, this is your time to exit the room. So I want to invite all of our children, if you want to uh, get up and head out the back. I almost said out the front because that's so customary, but we're sending them out the back these days. But uh, our folks are back there ready to receive them. And I heard last week that they had a high old time in kids' church, and I know they're going to as well today and so we're grateful for all of our kids workers and our children's ministry and God's doing some great things in the young families in our church and our children our students our student ministries have just been phenomenal lately I walked past the room on Wednesday night and it was just just beaming with excitement and and just kids up there I mean just the room was packed it was an awesome awesome thing and so we're so grateful for those who work with our kids and students in our Church, take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, we're going to look at, in God's Word, what we've sung about this morning. We're going to look at how God is triumphant, God is the conqueror, God is the one who's in control. He has Satan under his boot every single moment of every day. There's nothing that surpasses his sovereignty and his power and he is a good, good God, and he is the one who fights for us. And so we're going to look at that this morning as we look at the great prostitute and the scarlet beast. I was asked this morning if this was going to be a G-rated or an R-rated message. It's going to be biblical, let's just say that. I'm taking the title straight out of Scripture. You'll see that as we read through it in just a moment. That's what Babylon is referred to, and she is riding the beast. Uh, you know, we've been working through the book of Revelation for a number of months. I was looking the other day. We started about this time last year, second or first, first, second Sunday, I believe, in September of last year is when we started. And so we've been in this series for quite a while. In fact, this is number 31 in the series, message 31 in this series that we've simply called Get Ready. We take the title from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. We've looked at this many times. I want to remind you of what John says right at the outset of this letter, of this book, and this prophecy that he receives. He says there, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Every single day that we wake up is another day closer to the return of Christ. And so John is telling us in this revelation, in this word, particularly in this verse, that we must get ready in order to be ready when the Lord Jesus returns. In fact, Scripture is replete 
with this, this warning of the end of history, that time is coming to an end, that what we know today will, not, will no longer be tomorrow, will no longer be in the future. And so the warning is given to us as believers to ready us, to prepare us, to make sure that we are ready to see the Lord Jesus, that we are presentable when he returns. It also is given to us to remind us that God is faithful, to remind us to be faithful to him and to have hope in a world that is increasingly antagonistic toward the people of God. But at the same time, it's also given as a warning of judgment. Judgment to those who are not in Christ. Judgment to those who thumb their noses at Christ, who reject the gospel. And as we've seen throughout Revelation, war against the Lord and war against his people. As we move now into chapter 17, the judgment of God against evil, as well as the idolaters of the world, continues to take shape. I've told you uh, many times through this series that when we read Revelation, what we're seeing is these recapitulations of what's happening. You, the seven bowls run into the seven trumpets, which run into the, or the seven seals run into the seven trumpets, which run into the seven bowls. Now, as we move into chapter 17, is another picture of what all this will look like as we see the dragon and the prostitute and the war that they are bringing against the lamb and against his people. Reading through Revelation, we see really four visions. Uh, Visions of Christ, um, visions of his return, visions of what that means for the church. The first vision is there as Christ presents himself to the church and sends letters to the seven churches. The second vision is the breaking of the seven seals, the breaking uh, or the blowing of the seven trumpets, the pouring out of the seven bowls that ends in chapter 16. Now as as we move into chapter 17, we see this third vision which contains the revelation of this consummation of God's purpose in history, his purpose throughout humanity. And then at the end of Revelation, the latter part of chapter 21 into chapter 22, we find the fourth vision describing in great detail what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, what heaven is, is going to be like for believers. And so let's begin this third vision this morning looking at and reading through Revelation chapter 17. Look with me. John says in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman who was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that she carries, or that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it is and is, it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it also belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And then the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we read these words in chapter 17 of Revelation, that you are the God who conquers that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. Lord, we acknowledge that we have an enemy. We acknowledge that he is warring against you and against your people. Lord, we acknowledge that he is dangerous. We acknowledge that he is doing everything he can to destroy, to kill, and to cause suffering amongst your people. Lord, we know that your people suffer today, and they will suffer greatly during this time of tribulation. But our God is a conquering God. And we know that our enemy is headed to destruction. And so, Lord, we claim that this morning. And, God, I pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts and give us faith to trust you like never before. May we be found faithful as your chosen people, knowing that we have a conquering God. Bless us this morning as we look into your word. Open our hearts to receive and to apply what it teaches us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read through this chapter this morning, there's a lot of things happening here. In fact, we're going to be in chapter 18 next week, Lord willing, and, and chapter 18 comes a whole lot more easy to understand. It, it transitions and flows much more smoothly than this does. In fact, the, John tells us here as he writes, he says, he takes the vision from the angel who says, there needs to be a mind of wisdom to understand these things. This is a complicated chapter with a lot of different things happening, but there's really only three main characters. And we're going to look at those characters this morning, and then we're going to pull some personal daily application from them as we seek to apply it to our lives and to be faithful in all that we do as believers in this life. And so the first character that I want us to look at this morning is this great prostitute who's seated on this beast, this scarlet beast. She is Babylon the Great, the harlot who seduces the nations. You know, one of the seven angels... That, that poured out the bowl judgments in chapter 16 is the one who's leading John through this particular vision. He's showing John these things that will take place in the future. And so he shows him what God's judgment's going to be like against this great prostitute. Prostitution and adultery and, and this language, this metaphor is often used in the Old Testament. And usually it's used in the context of declaring or speaking against Israel showing her, showing the people of God to be a faithless people who's committing adultery against 
the Lord. And so it's speaking of God's people as a faithless wife who proved unfaithful by turning to false gods. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible with us this year, uh, you were in Ezekiel, I believe yesterday, Ezekiel chapter 16 in particular. And as we read through that chapter, it is very clear what Ezekiel is hearing and receiving in his vision that speaks of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And so this metaphor is often used in the Old Testament to speak of Israel. Here, the harlot is not the people of God, but it's the, those who are opposed to God. It's the enemies of God. It speaks of Babylon, who's the symbol of human civilization with all its pomp and all its circumstance organized in opposition to God. That's what we see in verse 18 as the chapter ends. And so Babylon, we know, is a mighty empire. It ruled its known world at its time. We also know that Babylon came in and conquered the people of God and removed the people of God. And so the Bible uses Babylon, this picture, to speak of an empire and empires who oppose God and who cause great suffering and pain upon God's people, removing them from their land. And so Babylon was a wealthy, mighty, powerful nation. It spread its idolatry and its immorality throughout the nation. nations. It promised great luxury and ease if they would simply uh, bow down and, and worship the gods of Babylon, namely the emperor himself. And so they promised a lavish, indulgent lifestyle if you would accommodate their idolatry and immorality. The symbol of seduction and harlotry has been present in every generation. It's not just Babylon when it talks about here. It's talking about every single generation and, and, and the, those who represent this harlotry and this, this adultery and this faithfulness of the people in the world. In the Old Testament, we would see empires like Egypt as well as Babylon, Persia representing this. During the early days of the church in the New Testament, uh, the symbol would be Rome. In fact, as John is receiving this revelation as he's writing it and giving it to the church, most likely these first-generation Christians, as they read this description of Babylon the Great, in their mind, they're going to Rome. Because Rome was that same sort of central headquarters of idolatry and immorality and all of the things just like Babylon. This rebellion and wickedness has been reproduced many times throughout history. It will continue to be reproduced. And it will consummate in a final manifestation of all the evil of godless nations at the eschaton, at that end time moment. So Babylon... Rome and the like were all characterized by gross idolatry. I was having a conversation with a guy yesterday and, and just kind of talking through what brings nations down. And, and I foresee this in the future of America. If you look at history, nearly if not every single empire and major nation that's influenced the world, it has not been conquered from outside. It has imploded and rotted from the inside. And it's what I see happening in America because of our idolatry, because of our immorality, because of our luxurious type of lifestyle and living. We become soft and no longer dependent upon the Lord. And so these pagan peoples, what happened to them is what happens to us or is what happening to us today. They chased after every idol known to man. They worshiped lifeless articles of wood and stone and gold. Sacrifice their children to demons. They worship, their worship often involved sexually immoral acts of lewdness, such as homosexuality and, 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 and orgies and pedophilia. I mean, it just gross, inhumane, godless, wicked things was 
was idealistic of what was taking place in these cultures. In fact, their immorality did not just take place behind closed doors. Many times it was part of their outward worship. It was part of their public worship. It was celebrated in the culture. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? Where we celebrate these things, where we, we, we recognize these things, and we, we, we we're excited that we're moving toward new areas of enlightenment and, and growth and all of this. But actually, what all we're doing is we're showing our wickedness and our evil and our rebellion against God. We're not liberating ourselves as a culture. We chain and shackle ourselves to the enemy's temptations. Babylon and this final consummation of this evil world empire also promoted lavish lifestyles of ease, which is all, always alluring to people whose lives are hard. I mean, think about it. Why set your minds, why set your hearts, why set your aspirations and desires on what will be rewarded to you in heaven when you can have it today? Right? It's the easy living. I mean, it's the whole idea of Financial Peace University that starts today. And so when we teach through Financial Peace, we're trying to help people change their perspective, change their mindset. Rather than living for today, live for tomorrow, live for the future. And so be wise with your money today rather than like you've always done and just live for the moment. Live for the future. Don't swipe the credit card. But what this, this lifestyle, this indulgent lifestyle teaches or, or promotes is this idea that I don't want to and I don't need to live for tomorrow because I can have everything right now. All my passions, all my pleasures, all my desires can be ful- fulfilled right now. So why live for the Lord and why live for what he promises me in heaven? All the while, what we don't realize is that when we live for today and not to tomorrow, when we live for f- self rather than for the Savior, we are continuing to shackle ourselves in our sin and continue to put ourselves more and more into bondage. And the things that we chase never satisfy. And so the great prostitute, as we walk through this, we see that she's adorned with purple and scarlet that reflects the splendor of her wealth and prominence, verse 4. She's adorned with gold. She's adorned with jewels. She has in her hand a golden cup. And so she's given this perception, this, this picture of wealth and prominence, of prestige and power. And so it's indulging. It's attractive. It's drawing people in. And yet, John tells us that what she has in the cup is nothing but abominations and immorality. This allurement of wealth, this allurement of luxury entices men and women away from the worship of God and into idolatry and her immorality. And so, John continues in the vision that he receives. She sets on many waters, verse 1. This is is to say that she controls the nations, verse 15 tells us. She's swaying them. She's seducing them. She's moving and leading them into greater and greater immorality and idolatry. She's the mother of prostitutes, her name says. And as the mother of prostitutes, she reproduces herself among the nations, continuing to spread her filth, continuing to spread her wickedness, so that not just her nation, whoever's representing that nation, but the nations of the world, peoples and languages and cultures, are held sway by her influence and her immorality. If this wickedness were not enough, she wars against the people of God, verse 6. Babylon, the Bible says, is drunk on the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus. Her hatred for those who worship the Lamb and her love for the evil things come from her close connection to 
the beast. Her close connection to the beast that she sets upon. And that's the second character I want you to see this morning. Not only do we have Babylon the Great, the great seducer, the great harlot of the nations, but now we see the scarlet beast who has seven heads and ten horns. We've seen this beast already. John here describes it as a scarlet-colored beast. And so what John sees here connects us back to chapter 12, verse 3, connecting us back to the red dragon, which represents Satan leading this effort, leading this war, leading this charge against the Lord and against the Lord's people. It also connects us to chapter 13, where it is also the Antichrist. And so this is the Antichrist here that we're seeing in chapter 17. John says he is full of blasphemous words, which connects us also to the Antichrist in chapter 13. These blasphemous words that are written aren't not, are not necessarily words or claims against God. It's more of the idea, like I said back then, it's more of the idea of self-deification, right? The Antichrist demands the worship of the people. All of the world will have to worship the Antichrist, worship the beast, lest they die. If you don't take the mark, if you don't worship his image, then you cannot live, you cannot do commerce, you cannot do anything free and open in the public because he demands the worship of all people. This is self-deification on the part of the beast. And so this Antichrist demands worship. He's acting as if he is God. Like in chapter 13, John sees that one of his heads is killed and resurrected. Verses 8 and 11 tell us this. And so what is he doing here? He's mimicking the resurrection. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's mimicking the resurrection of Christ, and he's doing this for the sole purpose to lead people astray. John says that the angel tells him that the people, the earth dwellers, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world will see this spectacle, see this miraculous event, and be drawn in worship to the beast. He's mimicking Christ. It kind of makes sense. If you know a person's dead and they get up out of the grave and come back as a mighty ruler, that would lead you to think there's something special about this guy. So it makes sense. But their rebellious, wicked hearts leads them to worship this person rather than to recognize he's a fake, he's a phony, he's an imposter who copies the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's seeking to look like Jesus. But what does John tell us about him? He tells us that he arises from the abyss. He comes from the place where demons and Satan himself dwell. It's not a holy place. It's not a godly place. It's not a a place where the Lord Jesus resides. It's not a place where believers reside. And so he's arising from the abyss. He arises from that realm of evil. Now, this guy may look godly, but he's anything but godly. Thankfully, John tells us this beast is headed for destruction. And we need to know that, amen? We need to know that this guy who's going to rise to such power and have the world worshiping him and following him and leading a mighty movement, a mighty army against the people of God and against God himself, we need to know that his destination is not to the throne of the world, but it's to the destruction of his own person. We're going to get to that in a few weeks as we move forward in this vision. But we do know here that he will be destroyed. He will burn forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. This final manifestation of evil, thankfully, will be short-lived. 
His destiny is a state of final and eternal doom. But until then, he will control the nations, verse 13. The great prostitute sets upon a succession of empires. As we read this and we try to make, under, uh, try to make sense of it, to understand it, we need to know that, he, that she sets upon this beast, she sets upon a succession of empires who lead the world into idolatry, immorality, and war against the people of God and the Lord himself. And, and so that's what these seven heads are and these ten Horns. They are historical Babylon. They're historical Rome. At the end, it's going to be this, this re-emergence of this eschatological Babylon, if you will, this end times perspective or perception of this empire of wickedness. So this beast, it seems, will appear in history as the head of this seventh empire, these seven heads that are mentioned, according to verse 11. This empire, the seventh leader, is going to be slain and arise again because there's this connection between the seventh head and the eighth head. They're going to be one and the same. And so he's going to be slain, rise again, and become this eighth head or this resurrected emperor. Through this resurrection, the beast is going to cause the earth dwellers to marvel and to worship him, to stand in awe of all of this. Kings and leaders of nations will swear allegiance to him, and they will give their authority, or he will give authority to ten kings. And John sees here that those ten kings who are given royal power by the, this emperor, by this, this antichrist, they're going to be given this authority. They will immediately give it back in allegiance to this emperor, to this antichrist, and they will lead this charge against the Lord and against his church there in Armageddon that we talked about briefly last week at the end of chapter 16. They're going to war against the Lamb, and this will be the battle of Armageddon. The war the nations and the beasts bring against the Lord introduced to us, thankfully, the third character. Now, if we were looking through this passage and it only had the, 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 the great prostitute and the scarlet beast, we would be a little apprehensive about the future. But the Lord tells us here that there's a third character, and the third character is the Lamb. Aren't you grateful today that the Lamb of God conquers evil? That the things that we're seeing in our culture today, the things that we see in our families today, the things that we see in our own lives today are not going to be the future for all of us. That evil will be put to an end, that it will be destroyed, that it will be cast into the lake of fire because the Lord Jesus Christ conquers all evil. That was a great place to just amen that or you know, just affirm that. You missed your point. You missed your opportunity. I hope you're with me this morning. But what's going on here? As we've read through the Revelation, what we've seen through all of these judgments, the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, we've seen that God, through judgment upon apostate, godless, rebellious humanity, is that he has brought serious devastation to the world. In the, in the trumpets, a third of the people are killed. In, in, in the bowls, the vast majority are killed. Millions at this point, maybe billions of people have been killed because of the judgment of God. And yet the people, the people who remain in their agony, in their suffering, in their pain, what are they doing? We looked at it last week. They're looking to God, cursing God, and, and, and shaking their fists in rebellion against him. They're gathering to war against the Lord. They will not repent. They will not turn in faith to the Lord. Instead, they continue to be opposed to the Lord, even though He's gracious and mercy. 
I mean, I've been telling you throughout this whole thing, I truly believe that one of the, the, the goals in the judgments of God is to help people understand that there's grace and mercy, that there's forgiveness, that there is a God who's serious about sin, but he's just as serious about grace and mercy. And so if you'll recognize your sinfulness, you'll recognize your wretchedness and come to him humbly, submitting yourself, calling out to him, turning from your sin and turning to him as Savior, you can find forgiveness. And yet that is what we don't see taking place. Instead, we see the opposite. The nations are coalescing together in rebellion and warring against the Lord. In the face of such hostility and organization, the Lamb of God, I want you to know this this morning, the Lamb of God never wavers. Never wavers. And God is not setting up in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? The scarlet beast is out there. There's a great prostitute on top of her. They're, they're co- the nations are coalescing. They're moving together. They're united. What in the world am I going to do? We got to figure out something, Michael. We got to do something, Gabriel. We got to get a special forces of the angels to go down there and take them out. We got to flank them from the inside or flank them from this other side. We gotta, that's not nothing. That, that, none of that is what the Lord's doing. He never wavers. We sang about it just a moment ago in that old hymn, that with one voice he will fall. You guys are not awake this morning. One voice, one word, one movement of the Lord, and it's all over for them. He never wavers. John here, I I believe that John presents it this way, obviously because it happened, but he didn't have to include this. But the Holy Spirit wants us to see something here. John, when he sees the great prostitute on this scarlet, this red beast, and he sees all of the circumstances around it, John says, I marveled at it. I was taken back by what I see, Saul. I was taken back by the, the enormity, the power, and the grotesqueness, and all of the things that went with this. And the angel looks at John and says, why are you marveling at this? I'll tell you the secret, what's going on here. I'll help you understand what's going on behind the scenes. There's no reason to marvel over this this joker when you look at the Lamb of God. He conquers all evil. With one voice, it's over. And yet John marvels at what he sees in this prostitute, this seven-headed beast. But heaven never marvels. Heaven doesn't stand in awe of Satan's and humanity's attempt to overthrow Christ. I want you to know on Mount Calvary, when Jesus was hanging from the cross, heaven was not in turmoil. God the Father was not wringing his hands either at that moment. No, he was always in control. He was in control then, he's in control today, and he's in control in the future as we're reading it here in chapter 7. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. He's their champion. He's going to conquer the evil ones, according to verse 14. And so the the outcome of the battle is sure. We need to know that today. As we move toward the end, and every single day that we wake up is another day closer to the end, we need to know that the the, the Lamb of God conquers all evil, that the things that we're seeing in our culture today, that's not going to be the future for us. Now, we may have to live through it until this life is over or until Jesus returns. But when it's all said and done, evil will be put down. Heaven never wavers in that. In fact, it is sure 
as we see here, because the Lord is the one who directs the evil things that are happening to fulfill his purpose, according to verse 17. I love what John includes here for us. It says, for God has put it into their hearts. What's happening here? The, the, the ten horns, the kings who have been given this authority, this power from the Antichrist, turn on the great prostitute, turn on the city of Babylon, and they destroy her. And this is all at the orchestration of the Lord Jesus Christ who conquers evil. Satan here, we learn, has no power, no ability to hurt God. He can do absolutely nothing that the Lord doesn't allow or direct him to do. And therefore, when he turns to hurt God's created beings in an attempt to, in some way, hurt God, he's actually living out God's very purposes for him and for those who have rebelled against the Lord. He's fleshing out God's holy, eternal purposes. He never wavers. He's in control. He conquers. And so in one last vain attempt to hurt God, Satan turns on the very ones who have followed and worshipped him to their own demise. We've already caught a glimpse of this in one of the trumpets. Uh, two of the trumpets, I believe. When the fifth and the sixth trumpets are, trumpets are blown, what happens? Demons come out from the abyss and they war against their very worshipers, right? I told you that we got those scorpion-looking centaurs that, that we sort of see there in Scripture that are running around killing thousands if not millions of the very worshipers of Satan because he never, he never cares about you. John 10, 10, I told you last week, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The only thing that the devil wants for you is your death. He wants your testimony dead. He wants your marriage dead. He wants your family destroyed. He wants this church destroyed. He wants anything that's godly in our culture wiped out. That's the only thing he cares about. And so he will destroy the people who worship him with not even a blink. That's what he does here. And so what we see is a vivid example of the destructive power of evil. Evil actually destroys everything around it, even itself. All throughout this scene, I want you to know this. Jesus is seen ruling supremely. He's the one directing the affairs. He's orchestrating the battles. Not one time is the Lord hampered. Not one time is he boxed in. Not one time is he flanked by some uh, uh, random uh, troop coming in, doing something that he didn't know was going to happen. He is Lord of lords. He is king of kings, verse 14 tells us. And so the evil nations surrender their authority to the beast and war against the lamb to their destruction because they're carrying out the very Lord's purposes for them. And in the end, sin is destroyed and the evil of this world is conquered. That's a good word. That's what John is seeing here in this vision. That's what we see here as we read it. And so what does it mean for us today? Let me give you three quick practical applications for us as we live holy lives in this world today. First thing I want you to see is this. We must recognize that the ever-increasing immorality of America is fueled by hell and rejected. Amen? The things that we see in America today that are godless, the things that we see in America today that are wicked, we need to know that what's behind it is not humanity, though we are wicked to the core apart from Christ, but it is hell itself. The Antichrist, the, the, the devil, Satan, every bit of wickedness is behind it. We also need to recognize that as the people of God, sin has no place in our lives. 
The seductions of the harlot are strong. The seductions of the immoral culture that the devil produces is strong. In fact, sexual sin is a great danger and and temptation in America. But it's not just American culture that we see this. It's the American church culture that we see this today, where sexual sin is destroying lives and families. You think the things that's happened just 85 miles to the west of us is is just by chance in the Jerry Falwell Jr.'s a controversy? No. There is an enemy that's behind that where people have got their focus off of the Lord and onto their own sinful desires and pleasures. Today in the church, adultery and pornography and immorality of all kinds, things that lost people would reject, are all too often found within the church. Sexual sin is bringing Christians and Christian leaders down all over our country. We need to recognize where it comes from and reject it. See, the danger of losing your testimony, the danger of destroying your family, that ought to be enough to flee those sexual sins, flee those temptations. The fact that personification of immorality sets atop the scarlet beast should make it clear to every believer that this immorality has no place in the life of a Christ follower. You see, when we see immoral things and we, we recognize that temptation in our life, we need, to, we need to connect the dots and see that it's just not some random thing in our culture, but no, it is a movement set on fire by hell itself. She rides atop the Antichrist. She's seated on the scarlet beast. And so the wickedness in our culture is something that we need to recognize and run from. That was weak, but that was a good place to to affirm. We need to be like Joseph who slithers out of his garments when the seducer comes time and time again and run for the hills. We don't just run from it. We run to Christ. We abide in him. We rest in him. We find safety and refuge in him. The ugliness and the wickedness of the beast ought to help us look into the beautifulness of the Lamb of God. Second thing I want you to see as an application is that we rest in the sovereignty of God in the face of tribulation. We live in an easy, easy culture. But you need to know that life's going to continue to get harder for us. It's not by chance that we're seeing a, a, a turn in our nation today where to be outward in our faith, to be gospel-centered, is harder today. Uh, when we have new members come in and we walk through our, our constitution and bylaws and our membership process and we talk about th- the fact that we have a covenant like most churches do, but we ask our, our members to sign that. One of the reasons we ask people to sign this covenant is so that we as a church can pr- protect ourselves from lawsuits in the future because we have, as a church, we have a biblical position when it comes to marriage, when it comes to sex and, and, and sexuality. We have a, a position where it is man and woman, one man and one woman for life. It's not man and man and woman and woman. It's not free love and, and do what you want, but that's what our culture says. And so we've created a way to hopefully, from a legality standpoint, protect ourselves. That's one of the reasons we have you sign the covenant. It shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have to sign a covenant to protect us, but that's the culture in which we live. We will be sued at some point. I'm saying this on, on the internet. People are hearing this, so expect a lawsuit here pretty soon. It's going to be harder for us to be faithful in our Christian walk. 
We need to rest in the sovereignty of God in the face of all tribulation. If we were those who lived during the great tribulation, we need to recognize that many of believers, if not most believers, will be martyred for their faith. The prostitute will be, blood, will be drunk on the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's what the word says. So today the persecution is nowhere close to that level in our country, but it is getting harder for us. In the face of suffering, we rest in God's sovereignty. We know and we trust and we believe and we seek refuge in the fact that God will sustain and reward us for our faithfulness. He's the one who sits enthroned over the nations. That's the message of this chapter. And then third application is this. we got to run to the lost with the gospel. The seriousness of sin and God's just judgment against sinners, it saturates the entire message of Revelation. Those in rebellion against the Lord, they're in danger of the fires of hell. The people who we live around, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our, our colleagues in the office, those we go to school with, without Christ, all of them are in danger of the fires of hell. They're in danger of being lost for all of eternity as a payment for their sin. Remember John's words as we opened up in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written, for the time is near. We run to people with the gospel. As we understand and read through all of the things that are going to happen toward the end and how it's going to play out, it ought to compel us to be more intentional with the gospel message. I mean, do you want your friends and family? Do you want that neighbor that lives next to you, has lived there for 30 years? that you've never shared the gospel with, do you want them to face the judgment that we read about in these pages? They will. They will. It ought to compel us in our evangelism. It ought to motivate us to believe it, to share it, to call the lost to faith into the gospel. You see, believers and followers of Jesus, we flee immorality. We need to rest in God's sovereignty, and we need to run to the loss with the gospel. In the face of this great prostitute who rides this scarlet beast, our glory is not in that picture of power and prestige and prominence and evil of all sorts. Our glory is Jesus, right? Our glory is Jesus. Last week I began with the lyrics of a song that has really ministered to me. I want to end with the lyrics of a song that also really resonates with my soul these days as I listen to it and as I read and study through Revelation. This comes from Christ Our Glory, song by Sovereign Grace. Listen to these words. Our rest is in heaven, our rest is not here. Then why should we tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Christ our glory, Christ our hope, Christ our King forevermore. Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Now, no hours should be wasted on seeking our joy and placing our hope in what will be destroyed. We look for a city that hands have not raised. We long for a country that sin has not stained. Christ our glory, Christ our hope, Christ our King forevermore. We look for a city that hands have not raised. We long for a country that sin has not stained. 
though trouble and anguish increase all the more, they cannot compare to the glory in store. Come joy or come sorrow, whatever befalls, the light of the Savior will outshine them all. Christ our glory, Christ our hope, Christ our King forevermore. Christ our glory, Christ our hope, Christ our King forevermore. Christ our glory, Christ our hope, Christ our King forevermore. Come joy or come sorrow, whatever befalls, the light of the Savior will outshine them all. Question for us this morning, is our hope in Christ? Is our hope in Him or is it set upon the things of this world? If our hope is in Christ, then will you believe on the gospel each and every day, to live that out, to flesh that out, to live that out, to share it with others. And if your hope is not in Christ, if your hope is not set on Christ, then will you believe on the gospel for the first time in your life and put your faith and trust in him, turning from your sin, turning from your wickedness, and in him resting, finding forgiveness and grace and mercy. Gospel is good news, the Bible tells us. That good news tells us that God made us, God loves us, God created us special. We're more special than the angels of heaven. We're more special than anything of this creation. We are specially created to be in relationship with a God who created us in his image. The bad news of the gospel is that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been dead died in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians tells us, that we've been separated from God because of that. Therefore, we're under his just judgment, the things that we've been reading about. But the best news of the gospel is that God has come to this world to do what we could not do for ourselves. Christ, the, the, the focus of this song that I just read from, he is our glory, not because he simply is God, though that's enough. He's our glory because he came and took your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross. He paid our penalty so that we could be pardoned. Saw in the news this morning a lady who's been pardoned by her president, and one of my daughters asked me, what is a pardon? Why is that important? I said a pardon is this legal concept of where the government, the, the president or a governor, looks upon the crimes that have been committed and says you have been pardoned, forgiven, They've been erased. All consequences have been erased. And then I added it with the idea that that is what salvation is. That is what Jesus does for us. We've sinned against God. We, re, we, re, we deserve the just judgment of a holy God. But because God is gracious and merciful, he paid our sin and pardons us of it. That's the gospel message. Is your hope in that? Online, as you watch us this morning, is your hope in the gospel? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. This is an opportunity for, as a believer, for you to say, Lord God, I don't want to live sinful. I want to rejoice in your uh, just provision and hope that you give me. I want to live holy for you. Someone who's still in your sin, this is an opportunity for you to say, Lord God, I'm a sinner under your judgment but I turn from my sin and place my faith and trust in you. Forgive me, cleanse me, make me new. The Bible tells us if you'll do that, he'll change your life. Father, we thank you this morning for your gospel.